Welcome to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast. With me this week is Brandy Keen, co-founder and senior technical advisor at CERNA. Thank you very much for joining me today, Brandy. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate the invite. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach me at david at cannabisequipmentnews.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. Make sure you get it delivered to your inbox first. Brandy, I always like to start these interviews by learning a little bit more about the person and how they came to cannabis. So what was it that brought you to this industry? Uh, you know, there there were really a, a number of of kind of interesting independent lines. I think that kind of tugged us uh, this direction. Um, we we had a, a hobby garden in the early two thousands, um, which was uh, which was you know kind of an interesting um, time, a, a dramatically different indoor cultivation industry at that time, right, than it is today, um, and uh, we also had um, a commercial construction company. And um, just kind of applying, you know, principles of commercial construction to what people were doing in indoor cultivation at the time was was really it was kind of silly. We were we were doing, you know, the the, the industry was doing things very inefficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that kind of led us to approaching things a different way and, and introducing some products to the market that that worked you know, more effectively and efficiently than, than some of the things that they were doing at that time. Uh, and then in parallel with that, my husband was diagnosed with epilepsy in uh, in 2007. And so it very. Hi. Yeah, <laughs> it's so it's always good to have an extra guest on the on the show. Uh, who Who's that? <laughs> That's Archer. Uh, who's normally very well behaved, but has chosen this moment to demand his uh, his mother's attention. Um, so anyway, when my husband was diagnosed with uh, with epilepsy in 2007, um, you know, our focus really switched from indoor cultivation as a whole to to you know understanding cannabis as a therapy for 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 epilepsy, and um, so it it really very quickly became a, a labor of of love and not just a business. Right, um, we got very passionate about it very very quickly. So. Did cannabis work as a suitable treatment to your husband for your husband? Interestingly, at the time, it wasn't it wasn't legal as, as therapy and, right. uh, and, and he wasn't using it as therapy, but the, the anti-seizure medication that he was given was pretty intense. Um, some pretty gnarly side effects. And, uh, in 2012, um, right. Arizona, Colorado and Canada all kind of, you know, had legalization efforts all at the same time. And, uh, we moved to, uh, to Colorado and he weaned himself off of the anti-seizure med that he was using and onto cannabis and has not had an epileptic seizure since 2007. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, honestly, those are the stories. I have similar stories from my family that brought me to cannabis. Yeah. Yeah. I would, uh, I would love to, uh, to hear about those at some point. It's, it is really, um, it is really interesting how, having a, a, a directly personal experience with it will kind of change your perspective on it as a business. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and how many people in our industry actually have those experiences. Agreed. No, it's uh, for me, the short version is that um, my sister-in-law was diagnosed with a very uh, ex- uh, aggressive form of Ewing sarcoma and breast cancer at the same time. And, you know, she was on the entire kit of meds and uh, she turned to edibles. I live in Wisconsin. Uh, we live in Wisconsin. It's completely prohibition state. And by the time she had gone through treatment, her doctor said that she was the first person he had worked with that had gained weight during chemotherapy and all she was only on cannabis. And at that point I was just like, nothing else makes sense. The fact that this is prohibited in this state is frankly disgusting, but, uh, it's kind of what drove me. Yeah. And, um, I mean, we have, you know, similar stories. My mother went through breast cancer chemo and, and cannabis was enormously helpful to her and, and any doctor, you know, anyone who's got experience or, or had a loved one who's gone through chemotherapy. One of the things that they tell you is they do not want you to lose weight. 
as, mm-hmm. as best as possible, you know, during chemotherapy, it's weakening you. And um, anything that stimulates your appetite, you know, makes you feel better, um, feel like you can eat. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's only positive things. So um, if we can do good and do well, well, let's do both. That's right. The one thing that situation taught me is that I'm no confectioner. I just can't do it. I got to stick to the words in the podcast. It just, it's just not going to work out. Um, you know, when you started uh, the company, you said that you had seen some silly things around the industry. What were some of those silly applications where you're like, there's got to be a better way? Well, it was just more, I mean, you know, people were just throwing 14 window units in in their garages, right? Um People, you know, and and so we're 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 adding inefficiency on top of inefficiency on top of inefficiency, and we're trying to use equipment that was designed for comfort cooling in the summer, and we're trying to force it to work in the middle of January, you know, to to uh, to cool a twenty four seven process heat load, uh, for instance. Um, at that time, um, things were very different. You know, everyone was using, for the most part, single-ended bulbs and in, in air-cooled reflectors. Which, for those of you who weren't around in the uh, in the indoor gardening dark ages, <laughs> um, you would have these these you know sheet metal reflectors essentially that had that had duct flanges on each end of them, and they would hook you know six inch or eight inch fans to them and just push air through them to uh, to reject that outside. Well, that had a number of uh, of of less than desirable uh, effects, you know, not the least of which you're you're changing the spectrum of your cultivation lighting by you know with with various temperature gradients and and um, condensation in your reflectors where your thousand watt light bulb is is living and you know there was a just a, a lot of just things that were really inefficient and um, and so we you know kind of identified um, oh CO two burners you know just pumping you know heat into the space constantly. Um, and um, so we just identified, like I said, some some means by which to make the existing technologies uh, more efficient, and uh, and then to kind of introduce some some technologies that are more specific to industrial climate control into uh, the indoor gardening industry. And and I, I feel compelled to point out, at the time, it wasn't the cannabis industry; it was the indoor gardening industry, right? Mm-hmm. And right. and obviously that shifted very dramatically in. Uh, shifted very dramatically in, uh, in 2011, 2012, when legalization started to change. What were the early days of CERTA like? Um, we were, we were a small company. Um, we had five employees. We had a, a 3000 square foot warehouse and, um, uh, we were very family oriented. We all knew each other really, really well. Um, and uh, we worked together, we played together, we knew each other's families, you know, um, that sort of thing. It was, I mean, like it is with anything, um, it was a, an enormous struggle in, in those, you know, those first couple of years. Um, we built a house, started a company, had a baby, all kind of in the same 18-month span, um, oh. which was, uh, <laughs> I don't think I would recommend necessarily. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and we were, we were excited to kind of really be, be making, making changes in how people did things in the industry. I mean, we were really the first company to, to really pay attention to efficiently managing climates in cultivation. Um, we were absolutely the first ones to the table to say, Hey, we know how to do this better than, than anybody else does. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that was, that was pretty exciting. Um, but it was also an enormous amount of work and, uh, we made a lot of mistakes just like everybody else did. <laughs> and, right. uh, but, but, you know, the, our, our clients were able to, uh, to learn from mistakes we made, you know, five years before anybody else did. So, from uh, the lessons that you had learned from indoor gardening, how did things change when you sort of shifted or at least uh, started focusing on cannabis? Um, you know, it's it's interesting because from a climate control perspective, it's really not that different. 
Mm -hmm. right? Uh, the inputs are different. Your sensible heat loads from the, the type of lighting that you're using may be different. Your photo period may be different. Um, your, your target temperature and humidity may be different, but your, 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 your challenges are the same. And, and that is, you know, calculating it accurately for the ever-changing condition, understanding, you know, kind of how transpiration, uh, affects, um, the, the, the humidity load and, and the cooling load, um, understanding what, what the crop wants, you know, from, from day one to, uh, to, to day 60. Right. Right. And, uh, and what the conditions are during lights on versus what the conditions are during lights off. But, but ultimately it's, it's really not any dramatically different from crop to crop. Um, mm -hmm. That being said, the way that people cultivate is a little bit different, right? If you're growing leafy greens, for instance, you have a tendency to uh, to have, you know, 10, 12, 15 levels in a space where in cannabis, you know, when people start talking more than two or three, it's it's that's a that's a unique, uh, right. a unique facility. Right. Um, the cannabis industry, though, uh, just exploded overnight and we went from from, you know, seeing, you know, 20 light cultivation facilities to 100 light cultivation facilities to 1000 light cultivation facilities in a very, very short period of time. And, uh, and what um, the applications or the equipment that, uh, that works well in a small cultivation facility is probably not the same equipment you want to use in a in a in a very large cultivation facility. So the understanding of all of those different types of approaches that you could make um, or, or take, and uh, and the nuances of of doing mechanical design in the context of all of these different types of approaches, because there's no wrong way to do it. Right, mm -hmm. you can make anything work if you engineer it correctly. But but really understanding the best applications for specific technologies um, was, uh, was really, really important to our growth and, and cannabis really drove that. It seems like sustainability and conservation are also really important with how you design facilities. Can you, how would you describe your methodology when it comes to a new cannabis facility and how you're going to lay it out? Well, you know, our, our, <laughs> Sustainability and, and energy consumption, there are a number of important reasons to focus on that, right? Uh, apart from, from a, a kind of moral obligation that we have as an industry to focus on, on reducing our consumption, there's also a pretty compelling business reason, right, to reduce your operating costs. And, um, and so our, our first and foremost, our, our most important goal um, when, we, when we start uh, designing a facility for, for a client is what are their goals, right? We need to understand exactly what what is the most important thing to this client, right? Um, is it time to market? Is it ongoing energy cost? Is it capital equipment expenditure and, and first costs, right? Um, so we need to understand everything we can possibly understand about their business um, before we make a recommendation. And what we recommend is the most energy efficient system that meets all of their other goals too. Okay. Right. And, um, and, and because, you know, I can, I can design the most energy efficient thing in the world, but if you can't afford to put it in, well, then I haven't really done any, done you any favors. Right. Right. And, um, and so we, you really have to spend a, a lot of time asking a, a million questions. And I say this to clients all the time, you're going to get tired of the questions that I have. Right. Because I really, really want to understand your business. Um, I'm not going to force something down your throat because I like the design. You, you need to like it. Right. When you mentioned uh, three critical issues for operators, uh, time to market, capital expense, and I think the other one was efficiency. Which one do you see the most of? Um, unfortunately, right now, we're still focused on time to market and first costs. Right. Yeah. Those, are, those are the primary considerations for cultivators. I think that... Having seen what happens to the price of cannabis in mature markets, right? Um, what we've seen happen in Colorado, what we've seen happen in Washington, um, and the in understanding the competitive landscape a little bit better, 
I'm starting to see a shift. I'm starting to see people slow down a little bit um, in uh, in new markets. I do think there is still a race to get to market very quickly. Um, mm. and, and for a number of reasons. I mean, you want to establish yourself as a brand before uh, before anybody else does to the best of your abilities. You also want to take advantage of those higher pound prices that are pretty typical of a brand new market, right? Before the before the, the market kind of levels out. I'm seeing people take more time evaluating new markets before they just dive in because, oh no, then my state legalized, I gotta grow, I gotta grow, I gotta grow. Well, why don't we who are we serving? Right. right. And and how how much space do we really need in order to serve that market as opposed to that kind of initial rush to just build out the most square footage you could possibly build out. Um, so I am grateful that I'm starting to see the industry as a whole think more about, about efficiencies and, and taking the time, you know, to really do a solid design before you just kind of dive in and, and, and start throwing equipment in a, in a room. Well, we'll think about it later. We'll, we'll think about it later. We just got to get growing. Right. What are some realistic conservation goals for indoor grows? You know, there are a lot of them and we actually have a, a blog that we put out recently that kind of touches on that. You know, what are what are some realistic things that we can really do to uh, to to reduce our 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 footprint and therefore our operating costs? We tend to phrase things in the context of, of operating costs. Right. Um, but but there's there's there are quite a few of them. Um, data collection is is a big one. Um Collect as much data as you can collect uh, in your facility and then analyze it. Look at it. Think about what's happening in the space. Look at what happens when you have certain irrigation events and how your HVAC system responds to that, for instance, right? Can you make minor modifications that uh, that that affect the way that that your HVAC systems respond and potentially reduce costs there. Facilities maintenance. That's a, a big one that we see overlooked all the time. Um, okay. And uh, and what I mean by that is, oh, yeah, 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 we're going to have somebody. We're going to have somebody to, to do maintenance. And, and 90% of the time, the grow staff ends up in charge of maintaining the, the, the systems in the facility at first, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's insidious what poorly maintained systems will do, and you won't even notice at first. You just kind of slowly but surely start using more energy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and then and that's kind of a precursor to to early failure. But uh, but but correctly maintaining those systems is 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 huge. Um, this is less about consumption, but more about the cost of operation. Um, paying attention to your time of use and your peak energy use, right? Um, we actually just uh, just had a conversation with some folks that were were saw a, a large increase in their their electric bill and were, were you know struggling with with why that happened. And then we went and we looked at the they'd made some some substantial changes to their lighting schedules, and they had more rooms overlapping than they had previously, and they they were unaware of this time of use or this uh, uh, demand charge from the utility. So they were using the same total kilowatt hours, but when they were using them um, was impactful to uh, to their electric bill. Um, one of the things that I really, really focus on that I think is, is going to ultimately be the primary driver for indoor food cultivation is water resources. Mm. And it's very difficult to make the case sometimes for uh, condensate reclamation and reuse mm-hmm. of, of water resources because it it's hard to make it pencil out sometimes for cultivators. They go, you know, I, I'm going to put in this ten or $15,000 water reclamation system. Well, water is cheap, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's cheap until you're in a drought, right? right. It's cheap until you, start, until you start seeing regulation affecting how much water you're going to be able to use. Uh, the Colorado River Basin, um, the, the states that get water from the Colorado River, I suspect, are about to start seeing some pretty substantial restrictions on the amount of water that they're going to be able to use. Um, if we reclaim condensate through our, our climate control systems, treat it and reuse it, we can reuse re- reduce our water consumption by, by at least 50% and possibly quite a bit more than that. 
Wow. No, that was uh, one thing I wanted to make sure to ask you about how droughts and other water issues that are, you know, likely headed down the road are going to impact these indoor grows. Are there other issues that you foresee coming? Uh, well, I mean, I think, unfortunately, I, I think that we are, we're going to be forced into restrictions on water use in the, in the coming decades in any application. Right. Mm. And we're not the least of it. Um, and uh, and that's primarily driven, I think, by by climate change and by scarcity of water resources. It's a real problem. Mm. Right. And it feels like a problem that's that's way down the road until we get down the road and we've still got a problem. Right. right. Um, so if we can put in infrastructure now that allows us to I mean, can all plants none of them consume water. They use water as a delivery mechanism and then they transpire that water right back out into the air and, and you can grab it. So if commercial agriculture is using, you know, 80 to 90% of our, of our water resources, depending on which st statistic you cite, and we can reduce that substantially in indoor cultivation um, with some pretty simple methodology. I mean, it, it really is just taking that condensate that's produced on your, on your HVAC system, draining it somewhere else, doing some filtration, oxygenation, sterilization, and then putting it right back into your, uh, into your water supply. Um, there are some folks now who are doing 0% um, uh, waste. Um, and there's a really, really interesting system out there um, that, uh, that we're keeping an eye on. Um, and uh We've seen a couple folks adopting it, not because um, of the cost of their water, but because they're they're having uh, restrictions on waste on wastewater and what they're able to put down the drain. So that's another area where you might see some regulation expanding into other areas. Is uh, is is used nutrient water and where that can go, right? And uh, and so I would anticipate that also being impactful. So not just drought, but also restrictions on what we can do with, uh, with use nutrient water and where it goes. What's the zero waste equipment that you're talking about? Uh, it's called true zero. Um, okay. and, uh, it's pretty interesting stuff. Okay. So CERN has been around nearly 17 years now over the course of your existence, you've worked with more than 800 cultivators. What are the projects that stand out to you? Oh man, there's some, we've done some really cool stuff. I mean, just really cool stuff. I, you know, I've always loved working with, um, with the bootstrappers, right? Mm -hmm. Those, those projects are always so cool to me when, when somebody has just saved every dollar and, and I mean, just the entrepreneurship in this industry is, it's humbling and astounding and so cool. And when we can go back to a facility a couple of years later and see them thrive and uh, and know we had some part of it. So really every project we've ever worked on is special in some some way, right? Mm -hmm. um, I uh, We have a project in, in uh, Illinois. Um, it's a longtime client of ours that, uh, that we've done. We're on our second, I think, 100,000 square foot building there. Um, that one's really cool. It's all aeroponics. Um, I love working on that facility. I love that team. I love the size of that system. That one's always going to stand out to me. Um, there's one that we did in, uh, in Alberta that was, that was two, uh, I think there were 50,000 square foot buildings, but they had a couple of existing buildings already. Mm. And then they, that someone else had, had worked on. So they called us to kind of help with them. They were having some struggles and then they asked us to design their next uh, next two buildings and uh, and we did it and reduced their connected load. I don't remember what the exact number was, uh, but their connected electrical load um, was was to the tune of megawatts lower. Oh, wow. um, oh, okay. Just by adjusting the uh, the mechanical design, and we also implemented some really cool free cooling um, applications or, or uh, technology into that into that facility. Um, and then right now we're working on a project uh, where we're incorporating CHP into the mechanical design. I really love that project. Um, it's very, 
it's very complex when you do that because you've got a, a number of moving parts and, and integrated systems and, and control strategies and, and all of those things. Um, so those are always really fun to me when, when people are really focusing on sustainability, reducing energy consumption, cool technologies, and, uh, and just you know fun folks to work with on top of all of it. What is CHP? Uh, combined heat and power. Um, so it's on-site power generation. Um, oh, okay. And, and uh, so they're producing their own, and you know, their own electricity on that site. Um, and you you produce an en- enormous amount of waste heat with the engines that you use to produce your power. Um, and it's very clean, uh, very clean power. And so we've got all this waste heat, and uh, and then we're implementing or using that waste heat in the uh, the HVAC design of the facility. You can use that a few different ways. The way that it's being used in this facility is as as reheat for the dehumidification operations. Very cool. When it comes to a new cultivation facility, can you speak to the importance of getting the design and the equipment specification right the first time? Oh man. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it, it. I cannot tell you how hard it is to retrofit an active facility. The amount of pressure that you have to cultivate, the amount of pressure that's on everyone to get cash flowing, right, um, is is unbelievable. Everyone is stressed to the nth degree when those plants finally go in the building, right? Everyone is oh. Right. I mean, it, the, it's just go, 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 go. And, and, and construction projects take a long time. They're expensive. There's just money just flying out the door and everybody wants it to start coming the other way. So if it's not right, then what? We, we stop and we go back. We ask our cultivators to, to deal with, you know, whatever they're having to deal with and just make it work despite, you know, whatever issues they, they may be having. Um, and so that's, that's why I, you know, it's, what are you going to do? Are you going to go out and, and rip out all of your ductwork, <laughs> you know, and, and start over? Are you going to, are you going to replace every fixture in the facility that you just spent, you know, X dollars on? Um, but it's not just the individual designs at the end. It's all of the coordination that happens through the design and, and architectural and engineering process, right? Everybody's job affects everyone else's job. Um, please don't take a completed architectural plan set and then hand that to an MEP firm and go here, design my, my mechanical, electrical, and plumbing around this completed architectural design because you pigeonholed yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Now um, we're, we're actually doing something very similar right now where they're going to be forced into certain design decisions that had those things been coordinated, they wouldn't have been forced into. Um, and, uh, and so that, that can be really painful. You can end up with a design that is maybe not optimized for your, your operations by putting the cart before the horse. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the other thing that we see a lot is everyone's just so eager to get plants in the building. They may go, no, it's not all the way ready, but we're going to go ahead and load it anyway, right? Right. And and then that just drags everything out, right? I, I you know, folks really need to understand that just because the building's erected and all the systems are 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 installed and the contractors are done, they're not. It's not necessarily finished, right? Mm. Um, all of those systems need to be tested. All of those systems need to be, you know, have some level of of commissioning. And uh, in in operational, you know, testing before you you actually go go prime time with them, and rarely does that actually happen. Almost always, oh, the contractors left. Let's put some plants in, right? <laughs> right. Um, speaking about some of the bootstrappers that you've worked with, how many of them wind up making it? And do you find yourself? You talked about there is a great deal of entrepreneurship and passion in this industry. Do you find yourself getting more emotionally invested with clients in cannabis or those bootstrappers? I I do. I mean, I'm it, it, truth truthfully, and I pro- it, it it's probably detrimental in some ways to my uh, ability to sleep at night. 
I get emotionally invested in every single project <laughs> and to some degree, yeah. right? Um, and I think most of our team does. Um, you know, we all take a great deal of pride in, in the work that we do. And, and we genuinely want anyone that we work with, you know, to have a, a great success. Um, and, um, uh, you know, we get to know each other really well. We, we mm-hmm. you know, we're going to work together for a long time. It's a long process. And, um, and so I don't think that there's, there's any project that, uh, that any of us have, have treated as just a, you know, it's just another project. They're all, they're all special and important to us in some way. Do you have, is a lot of your business repeat business from people either adding or expanding or um, how much of it is new business and how do those people find you? The vast majority of the work that we do is either repeat clients or folks that have been referred by other clients. Um, and then beyond that, um, SEO, you know, we, we, we obviously SEO is a, is a big one for us. So when people are Googling, um, certain things about a big, about cannabis, cannabis facility design, um, then they'll find us that way. Um, but, uh, um, we also participate. I mean, I, we have a, we have a lot of content, right? There's a lot of information. We have an enormous amount of information (laughs) and, and we try to share it to the degree that we can. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so our, our blogs are an amazing resource for people out on our website. Um, we do, uh, we try to publish a, a white paper, um, uh, you know, as often as we can on, 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 on subjects, you know, that we're, we're really knowledgeable about. Um, so those things also, I think, you know, help people understand how much we know and, uh, and what we can help them with and, and kind of, you know, we'll, we'll drive them, them our direction, but that, uh, that repeat client and, and that, referral from our existing clients is where I couldn't put a number to it, but I would tell you the vast majority of our business comes from. Of the potentially new states coming online and those that have uh, most recently, which ones have you the most excited in terms of the opportunity? Um, opportunity wise, you know, we're seeing, um, I, I love New Jersey. Um, and it, it, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing quite a lot, uh, of infrastructure in the Northeast and, uh, which, which is exciting to me because we're seeing that both in cannabis and in food, which is, uh, which is pretty interesting and it tends to be concentrated in the Northeast. So got a lot going on there. Um, I'm excited to see the things that are happening in the deep South, right? Um, and, uh, they're smaller markets in general, but, you know, when, when Mississippi and Alabama are, are letting people grow cannabis in their States, it tells me that we've got kind of a, a some mainstream traction right. and, uh, and traction with, with demographics that, um, that maybe were more resistant historically to, uh, to the benefits of, of, of cannabis in their, in their state. Um, so, you know, we've got a lot of Alabama licenses that we're seeing go out, uh, a lot of folks in Mississippi who are working on, on, uh, on licensing and, um, and or starting build outs. I love those states. That makes me very excited. So Texas, uh, is expanding its program, which isn't, uh, you know, is not big news, but, uh, but a lot of activity here. This is my home state. So it's a big deal to me. So did you move from Colorado to Texas? We're actually from Texas originally, um, okay. and that's where we actually were founded uh, back in uh, back in 06. And then we relocated to Colorado when the kind of cannabis uh, shift happened. And uh, and then uh, CERNA is still headquartered in uh, in Louisville, Colorado. Um, but we moved back home um, in 2020. Okay. Um, I in uh, talking about the content on your website, I definitely want to recommend anybody go and check it out because not just the white papers and blogs, but you also have a fair amount of case studies on your website that I think uh, in terms of bang for your buck content to consume, the case study really gives you, because you can find anyone in a similar situation and see what worked for them. That's a really good point. And, and, and um, you know, our, our team deserves an enormous amount of credit for the work that they put into getting those case studies done because we don't just, um, you know, we don't just go, hey, can we write something for you? We go to their site, we take pictures, we interview, you know, we really, really, really want to understand what their challenges have been, 
what their experience with us, with us has been like, but not just with us, within the industry as, as a whole, right? So there's a lot of information in those case studies that may be relevant to, to CERNA and what we do, but also relevant to, to things that that you can learn about that may have nothing to do with us, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and we we try to do case studies from a whole host of different types of cultivators, right? So I think we have case studies from 5,000 square foot grows and case studies from 100,000 square foot grows. What percentage of your business is food versus cannabis? I don't know what the exact number is right this second. I mean, if I'm just just guesstimating, I would say we're probably, we went from being all cannabis over the, the first, say, eight to 10 years. Um, you know, from, I mean, I say the first eight to 10 years, from from the time that cannabis was legalized right. in 2000, 2011, 2012 timeframes to, to now. But over the last couple of years, we've seen a, a substantial uptick in uh, in indoor food. I expect that to continue. If I had to guess, I would say that or estimate, I would say that probably 15% to 20% of, of new inquiries that we see are, uh, are food related. Um, okay. but still, still heavily weighted to cannabis, but I, I expect that to, uh, to continue to expand on the food side. In November, uh, 2021, you changed the corporate name from CERNA to CEA industries. Why the switch? Um, well, we, CERNA is very well known in this space for what CERNA has historically done, which is which is climate control focused, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we we do a lot um, outside of just climate control. Um, we do we have you know we have a, a whole architectural design services, um, mechanical engineering, right? Electrical engineering, plumbing. Um, we have we have certain products and technologies um, outside of climate control that we offer, and then we also wanted the the ability to, if we were going to expand um, into other areas of the industry, um, you know, to to have something that's maybe um, a little bit more all encompassing to controlled environment agriculture and not just the the specific thing that CERNA you know has always been has been known for. Um, but, uh, that was really the, 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 the impetus, I think for that, uh, for that adjustment. When you talk about having your own products and technologies, are these products that you manufacture? Are these products that you have exclusivity to distribute or are these partnerships that you have with manufacturers? Kind of all of the above. Um, okay. so we do have, you know, certain, so, so all of our uh, our control systems and our control panels and all those things are, are proprietary and they're actually you know assembled in our facility in in uh, in Louisville. Um, we have certain branded equipment that that you know is manufactured at other factories, but is is Cerna branded equipment. And then in addition to that, we also have partnerships. With with other manufacturers, um, where we specify and distribute um, their their equipment to uh, to our clients, and and the reason for that is, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier, but there is no one size fits all solution, right? There there are a million different ways to make something work in a cultivation facility, and knowing how to quantify the the, the problem and then apply the right solution is is really what our job is. Mm-hmm. And uh, in order to apply the right solution, we wanted access to all of them. Right. So what is the process for vetting potential partners or what do you do internally when you're trying to bring your own products to market just to make sure that they're sort of ready? Sure. Um, so <clears throat> Obviously, um, uh, a lot of, of data analysis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're looking at um, independent lab test results um, for, for, for certain uh, equipment, right? I want to know, um, I don't want to know what, what you say it does. I want to know what Intertech says it does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and making sure that we're looking at, um, at, you know what independent independent labs say the the results are we want case studies um if it's if it's a, a product that is already on the market that we're you know that we're just distributing we want to know who your, who your existing clients are we want to maybe you know talk to a few of them right i want to see it in use i want to see a sample 
Um, if it's something that we're making um, ourselves, obviously we build it, we test it, we use it, right? And uh, and and make sure that it's ready uh, before we roll it out. Um, there's always, anytime you're introducing a new product to the market, you know, there's always the, the likelihood that it's going to need to be improved upon or tweaked over time, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so we're never resistant to that either, right? We always want to know, um, like with our, with the, the control systems, right? I I um I want to be able to look at that system in a year, in two years, in three years, in five years, and go, how is the system performing? What can I do with programming? Can I look at this and could I have done it better? Can I make tweaks to that one and make it operate better? Right. And uh, and so that's something that we're always open to too. You had mentioned one of the realistic changes or improvements that operators can make is in the uh data collection. Do you recommend, I mean, for some people that means specifying smarter equipment out of the gate, but if they already have equipment in house that isn't necessarily smart, is it adding new sensing or IOT to that equipment in order to collect that information? Yeah. Even if you don't have a a sophisticated control system that's monitoring every aspect of your, of your facility, you can still put in monitoring equipment and sensing equipment, you know, that, that tells you what's going on. And then you can go, Oh, Hey, um, you know, room two yielded 4% more than it did last harvest. I wonder what happened. You know, you don't want to go, I wonder why that is. Right. You want to go, <laughs> why is that? Right. Yeah. And, uh, and so that means, okay, well, let me go back through the climate data over the entire harvest and see what was different this harvest than it was last harvest. Let me go back over my irrigation data, right? So if it's not being being metered or 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 electronically captured, um, what are we writing down, right? And then and then who's looking at that, right? And that it's primarily going to be around. If you're not if you don't have a system that's automatically collecting that data, it can be labor intensive to do it, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so in those cases, it might be more realistic to kind of monitor that. Um, for anomalies, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just start there. Um, and then, and then, and then chase down the anomalies. Um, but, uh, but continuous improvement requires data collection and, and you can make the the five or eight or 10% improvements, the big improvements, right. Just with your facility design, but then you're going to have to, we're going to have to accept that at some point we got to be looking at half percent improvements and 1% improvements, you know, and those are going to move the needle too. And in order to do that, we, we got to collect data. What, how else are you going to do it? Right. What are your expectations for federal legalization and how does that stand to change your business? Man, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) I know that the standard loaded industry question. It, it's, it's, I mean, at some point there's a federal legalization effort, but I mean, how many different directions can this possibly go? Right. Mm-hmm. Is it descheduled? Is it, is it rescheduled? Is it, is it, you know, uh, FDA monitored? Is it, is it, is there interstate commerce? Is there not interstate commerce? Right. All of these questions I think are, are big questions. And then how do the state industries respond to a, a, a federal legalization that, that allows for interstate commerce, right? What, mm-hmm. what you know, is it going to be like hemp where every single state gets to define its own regulatory framework here? You know, it, there's, there's so many different ways that that can go. Um, I think the industry as a whole right now, if I, if I look at the industry, I think that the the existing operators, for the most part, in within the states, would fight pretty hard to to maintain the state by state regulatory framework that exists right now. Because what happens, you know, is is you end up in a situation where you have very very big players that can kind of squeeze out, you know, the smaller players, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that that's good for anybody, um, right? frankly. Um, but does that mean that we end up with the kind of a Budweiser and microbrewery model, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's so difficult to, to tell. Um, I, I think that I would be thrilled if we could get a banking act. I think that would, that would be enormously beneficial. Um, it, you know, it would, the, the kind of usurious financing that we see so often in these, 
they, I don't want to say it's too serious because it's not loans, right? It's equity, usually things like that. Um, but we see a lot of cultivators take some some pretty 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 bad money sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, money that that other operate or other businesses would not take um, just to get operational. And uh, um, and you know, if we could get a banking a uh, banking law passed, I think that we uh, we would enormously benefit from it. The entire industry would. I think so too, and I think that's the fact that safe banking has kind of start started and stopped at various phases now, it's kind of taken the wind out of a lot of sales because that just seems like the most common sense to do a lot of positive change throughout the entire industry. It, it does. I mean, you know, first of all, it's so funny to me how unconcerned we are, the possibility that all these cash businesses might be laundering money. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. I mean, if 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 all of the five million other positive things for the industry that come out of the Safe Banking Act are not considered, you know, to me it seems like the folks who are kind of against giving the industry a, a safe banking solution, um, they might they might like the the potential increase in tax revenue that might come from 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 money trails, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, I mean, I think that we all know that it's, it's entirely politically motivated, right. And, uh, and it's just whichever way the political winds are blowing that day. And, uh, there's a lot going on at the federal government level right now. Um, that's, uh, you know, showing us how dysfunctional things can really get. (laughs) (laughs) That is a very nice way of describing what's going on. (laughs) <laughs> um, one of the one of the articles that I saw on your website that I found particularly interesting was what to look for when vetting a design firm. If you can give a high level overview of that for our viewers and listeners, sure. what should people look for when they're looking at design firms? Um, I mean, I would say the the, the very first thing I would ask is. Um, their experience, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's a cultivation facility, whether it's a, a a dispensary, you know, what is your direct experience with exactly what I'm doing, right? Um, can I talk to some of your clients, right? Um, and uh, and those two things are going to be uh, pretty important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, just being able to demonstrate um, positive experience in in the space. Um, We've, we often see, there are a lot of very, very competent um, design firms out there, right? But being competent in, in designing a house or designing a commercial office building um, is very different from being competent at designing a cultivation facility. Um, and, uh, and, and all the moving parts and all the coordinating pieces and all of the things, that, the questions that you have to ask and the things that you need to understand um, so that w- those would be my my two biggest ones. Um, from there, then I would go to um, what specific experience they have with whatever your unique situation is, right? Um, your cultivation methodology, um, your uh, the size of your building, right? the the size of your grow rooms, the number of tiers that that you know, all of those things, um, you know, have you done this and and what were your solutions and and how did you uh, how did you apply those solutions? And then I would pay very close attention to the number of questions that they ask you and yeah. what those questions are, right? Because they need to know a lot about how you intend to cultivate before they can they can really help design something for you. Um, and then lastly, I would ask them what different types of systems they've applied. Um, because a lot of times you'll, you'll see that, that someone gets real comfortable with one kind of technology and they kind of force it in, um, no matter what the, uh, what the circumstances are. Um, so you, you tend to want to work, want to work with, with somebody who has, um, who's applied multiple different types of, uh, of technologies into these facilities as well. Is that, is that more common of an issue just because having dealt with engineers in other industries, they certainly know what's right. They know the right way to do things. So they kind of, do engineers in this space, do some think they have the blueprint that everyone should follow rather than seeing what the operator wants to accomplish? 
it, yeah, we, we, we see that a lot where, um, and it's not, it's, it's a pretty, pretty typical way of, of, of engineering things is you get real comfortable with, with how to apply a specific technology, right? Engineer, look, we're all really risk averse. <laughs> that's a, that's a common hallmark of, of, of an engineer, right? Mm-hmm. Is, uh, is, is mitigating, mitigating risk. And so when somebody gets real comfortable applying one type of technology, you know, is it going to work? Yeah. Is it the absolute, is it the best for that application? Maybe not. And so they're a lot more focused on being absolutely confident that it's going to work maybe than, than being willing to explore other options and risking, you know, that, uh, that they haven't applied it correctly. Right. Um, and, and that's not, and please, like I said, there are a lot of really good engineers in our industry, right. That that's, um, and, uh, and, and we should, we should all understand that, but, um, but asking, like I said, someone who has historically done warehouse buildings and rooftop units, you know, um, for comfort cooling, and then asking them to then design a cultivation facility, you know, that's a completely different animal. Brandy, thank you very much for taking the time today. I really do appreciate it. Um, before we get out of here, I wanted to ask, is there anything else in particular that we might have missed or anything that you want to make sure uh, the Cannabis Equipment News audience knows about CERNA or yourself? I mean, I don't think we missed anything. I, like I said, I really uh, I appreciate the amount of time that you spent with me. And um, I, had a, I had a great time chatting with you. I would just say, you know, CERNA is is an architectural, mechanical, electrical, plumbing design company. We we implement the the systems that we design for folks, um, and we're also very very agile, right? If you need help with your cultivation facility, just call us. There's a million ways we can help you, and mm-hmm. um, and if we can't, we know somebody who can. So. Before you got into this business, did you ever envision that it was going to be cannabis? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I was in technical sales and semiconductor industry, and if you had told me 20 years ago that I would be, uh, frankly, an expert on cannabis environments, I, I would have laughed at you. Uh, that would have been um, was never on my radar. Um, but uh, but life takes us down down some interesting paths, and I will not change a thing. Is it uh, you sticking with cannabis and a little bit of food or do you have, you know, a desire to get back into that semiconductor industry? <laughs> uh, I have no desire to get back in the semiconductor industry, although I am very excited to see that we're building new uh, new wafer fabs in the U.S. again. So that's mm-hmm. uh, that's very good news for all of us. That is that is. Uh, and they're huge. <laughs> um. Well, thank you uh, again for taking the time. And uh, I hope we get a chance to do it again soon. Yeah, me too. Anytime. It was great. All right. Well, before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach me directly, david at cannabisequipmentnews.com. Make sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter and make sure you get it delivered to your inbox first. For Brandy Keene, co-founder and senior technical advisor at CERNA, I'm David Manti. This is the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Cannabis Equipment News Podcast.